because if you don't totally commit and use all of your language training and your full inner core, it's not going to work. Hello and welcome to The State of Shakespeare. I'm Garrett Vandermeer. And I'm Jim Elliott. And today, joining us, we have Deborah Ann Bird. Welcome, Deborah. Hello. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you for being here on the program. Deborah Ann Bird is the founder of the Harlem Shakespeare Festival and Take Wing and Soar Productions. Miss Bird has guided the company's growth from its birth in 1999 into a viable support organization serving women, youth, classical artists of color, and theater arts groups throughout New York. Welcome, Deborah. <laughs> Glad to be here indeed. Now, Deborah, 2015 is the third season for the Harlem Shakespeare Festival, is it not? Yes, it is. Indeed, our third season. And what is in store for audiences during the third season? Well, we're producing the Sable series, the history of black Shakespearean actors, and we're producing an all-female Othello, and we're doing a stage reading of Much Ado About Nothing set in Louisiana post-Civil War, and we're also doing a stage reading of Mrs. Warren's Profession. So there's some Shakespeare and there's some others thrown in there as well. Oh yeah, we had one Shaw in there. <laughs> Absolutely. So three seasons. Congratulations. Yeah, congratulations. That's awesome. Thank you so much. This is a veteran theater company and a fledgling festival. What is the relationship between Take Wing and Soar and the Harlem Shakespeare Festival? Well, other than I founded both of them, what happened is I was working, of course, with Take Wing and Soar Productions, and I was doing a program called Theater's Leading Change, and we were taking a look at how we can best make our company sustainable. So I was checking out different possibilities and I thought, well, what would happen if I took my entire season and squeezed it into one lump instead of spreading it out over the whole year? And so I did. I took the season and I made it mostly Shakespeare because I found that our Shakespeare programs were the most attended and the most successful. And of course, we love our Shakespeare. And then I said, well, let's start the Harlem Shakespeare Festival. And then we did it. (laughs) (laughs) I kind of just like that, but you know. I've read a ton about the Harlem Shakespeare Festival in the press and on social media. And so you guys have made quite an impression in your first three years in the city of New York. Yes, we are liked here. People seem to think that we are necessary, and so we keep pushing forward. We are also being liked and celebrated in a little bit of Paris and a little bit of London. People seem to like just the name itself, Harlem plus Shakespeare plus Festival equals a fun time. It just sounds fun. Well, I think Orson Welles knew that, too. Yeah, because the voodoo Macbeth. Yep. Yes, yes. And also, two of our guests, Paul Prescott and Paul Edmondson, hung out with you guys and just, they raved about you. Oh, yeah, we had a ball with Paul and Paul when they came here during their Shakespeare on the Road tour. That's right. One of the places they visited was us, and we had a ball with them. We really gave them a good Harlem welcome. (laughs) I love it. So, who would you say is your target audience, and what are you doing to reach them? Well, our main target audience is the Harlem resident population. We work to get them to see our shows, and then we stretch out to the five boroughs of New York City and then the tri-state area and beyond. We have people come from Connecticut, Boston, Virginia, 
as well as Bronx, Brooklyn, and other parts of Manhattan. So I really work to target Harlem, but it stretches beyond, and we're happy with that. That's great. And after the third season, what can we look forward to next from the Harlem Shakespeare Festival? We are going to the Shakespeare World Congress next year in London. And we'll be doing the Sable series there. We're looking to do Henry the Six, Part One, Two, and Three special. They're 40 minutes each, and then tag Richard the Third on the end. We're doing a lot of touring with our show, the Sable series, the history of Black Shakespearean actors. That is starting to be picked up by different venues, different conferences. Tell us a little bit more about the Sable series. Is it a play in its own right, or is it a series of talks or lectures? How does it, it work? It is. It's a play in its own right. It is set up in a lecture format that has music and projections. We feature Paul Lawrence Dunbar's poems, um, Shakespeare poems. You will see some Othello some Richard III, some Cleopatra, some (laughs) lovely stuff like that. It is a lot of fun, and the audiences always walk away saying, that was very educational, because it features Henrietta Vinton Davis, which most people don't know. She was a Shakespearean actress back in 1880s, introduced to the world by Frederick Douglass. And then we have Ira Aldridge, which a lot of people know. Of course, he left America and spent most of his time in Europe. And then Paul Robeson, which I don't know who don't know him. Right. <laughs> but if you don't, you will learn <laughs> when, when you come to see the Sable series. It is a special performance. It's filled with poetry and song and law with monologues and scenes from Shakespeare, Romeo and Juliet, Anthony, Cleopatra, Othello, Richard III. We have some moving spirituals and video projections, and it's really beautiful. A play featuring, as you said, three actors that's touring both nationally and internationally. Indeed. I really wanted the world to meet some of these artists, and perhaps I call it the Sable series because I'd like to do three more actors. It's inspired by the book Shakespeare in Sable by Errol Hill. It's a beautiful history of black Shakespearean actors, and I thought that we could put together something and feature, you know, at least three of the artists at first and then tell the story of the African Royal Theater that was started in 1821 in New York City and the persons of color doing Richard III. It's a wonderful thing. So it's inspired by the text, but adapted, I'm assuming it's an original adaptation by your company. uh, Yes, I call it translated from, adapted from, inspired by Errol Hill, Shakespeare and Zabel. (laughs) All of that. All three. (laughs) Yeah, the book really moved me when I received it after I graduated college. And I was so moved that I promised to somehow make it come alive. And it took a good 13 years, but here it is, indeed. And it's, That's called perseverance. Indeed, indeed. It's as if the characters just kept calling me to say, what about us? Don't forget about us. But it's beautiful. I'm intrigued by some of the other offerings in your upcoming 2015 season. Much Ado, and also... The all-women Othello. What was the inspiration for an all-women Othello? Well, I was hanging out with Lisa Volpe, who runs the Los Angeles Women's Shakespeare. And she's been producing women doing Shakespeare for the last 20 years. So I just said, well, we wanted to collaborate on a project. And we were at the Shakespeare Conference of the Shakespeare Theatre Association. And... We said, well, let's do something. And when she visited me here in New York, we were watching Tina's Packard do Women of Will. 
And she did a scene from Othello. And then it hit me. I said, what if we do Othello, an all-female Othello? And I asked Lisa Volpe if she had any Iago in her. And she said, yeah. (laughs) And... Uh, she said, you got some Othello? I said, yeah. And so she came <laughs> to New York, and we did a stage reading of it, and it was received wonderfully. It was sold out. And then the producers and then our audience members started asking for a main stage production. And so now we are getting ready to do a main stage production of Othello, directed by Tony Award-winning actress and director Trezana Beverly. He's the woman who won the Tony for, for Colored Girls back in the 70s. She's a brilliant actor and director who works out of Juilliard now. And she is looking forward, she said, to really working me out. So I'm looking forward to a very uh, frightening, (laughs) yet wonderful journey, indeed. Our listeners are familiar with Lisa Volpe, who's been a guest on this program. Maybe our Los Angeles listeners can look forward to a touring production of this Othello sometime in the future. But inspired by her, we will press on, indeed. And then you can dangle the carrot and go out to L.A. and do it with her in a year or so. That's right. (laughs) Othello is, of course, a play that is absolutely seething with racial tension. And it would be an understatement to say that this is absolutely relevant today. When it was written, of course, it was intended for for the audience of the time, which was a homogenous audience, you imagine, of mostly or exclusively white people. Now, how well do you think that this play goes down with today's audiences? I think it still goes down well. One, because I keep seeing it produced everywhere. Like this season alone, it is at several theaters all over the place. So I think it goes down well. When we did the stage reading of it, our audience, of course, is mixed race because our cast are always mixed race, but it went down very well. People seem to really like this play. I think that they like the sneakiness of Iago, the vulnerability of Othello when he can be vulnerable. Desdemona, when she's poor girl, is being accused of all kinds of things. It's a very intriguing play, and it's about things that happen even now. This play, for me, is so problematic. I find it to be humorless. You said humorless? Humorless! You've never seen the right production, Garrett. That must be the case, because I've seen people laugh all the time. I admit that I have never seen a good production, and I saw a particularly disappointing production this summer. It made me dig in my heels even deeper about this problematic play, which seems to me to boil down to a snuff play. (laughs) I I think this play was written just for that singular thrill, and that's... It. I think that you need a brilliant Iago. You absolutely do. He spends a lot of time talking to the audience. And if he, like Lisa Volpe, <laughs> can talk to the audience in a way that connects with them, I think Iago needs to be not only devious, but charming and personable. He's the Richard III of the play. Yeah, he needs to get the audience to kind of like his terrible self. And when he succeeds in that, and his charmingness and his wicked, the play works and you laugh. You laugh at some of the lines because you see how some of it is just funny. <laughs> <laughs> 
Now, Deborah, you set this up so that it's Iago who makes or breaks this play, and yeah, not necessarily. Not necessarily good, but Iago is very Othello. important. If you have a brilliant Othello, he's brilliant. Yeah, you he's have wonderful. to have a strong Othello, but without a good Iago, the play is going to suffer very, very much. Very much. I saw one where Othello was wonderful and Iago was bad. And that is what made me know you can't have a bad Iago. (laughs) You just can't because it'll mess the whole thing up. So they need to be equally strong. I have never seen the play work, but I imagine in order to make this play work, you have Uh to have an Othello who hasn't decided what he's going to do until the moment that it happens. And I think so many productions, we see Othello deciding early in the first act that he's going to do the deed and then there's absolutely no dramatic tension left. When I did it, I tried to love her all the way until... (laughs) get strangled <laughs> he does love her he totally you know loves her. I, 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 I really her. was tortured by having to take her out she's a little plaything for him what does she bring to the relationship no she's not a plaything. he really loves this woman you don't he think totally so? loves her no you have not seen a good production Gary. i have yet to see a desdemona that made me think oh well now here is a match for othello that makes me think of a Cheers where Shelley Long is playing Desdemona and she like fights back because he's actually trying to kill her and the director goes, finally, a Desdemona with a backbone. Exactly, exactly, exactly. I've only ever seen it with a pretty little Desdemona who's a victim. No, I have a feisty Desdemona. Wait till you meet her. I mean, in auditions, I was like, oh no, she's going to be real feisty. Yeah, I'm going to have to really like, take her out. I want to think, oh, that's so sad when she gets killed instead of, oh, yeah. at last. Finally. <laughs> oh, Garrett. <laughs> so, anyway. Deborah, we have to show Garrett something good so that he can change his mind. Here's the scene, then. If you'll set the scene for us, the speech that you've chosen is yeah. in Act 5, scene 2, what's going on? Well, Othello is coming in to the bedchamber. Of course, Desdemona's there, and she is asleep, and Othello is wrestling with doing the deed, even to this moment. As we were saying earlier, he has not made up his mind to kill her yet. He has not. I mean, he knows he has to at this point, and he's going to, but he's still struggling with it, is what I understand. And this is Othello from Othello, Act 5, Scene 2. It is the cause. It is the cause of my soul. Let me not name it to you, you chaste stars. It is the cause. Yet I'll not shed her blood, nor scar that whiter skin of hers than snow and smooth as monumental alabaster. Yet she must die, else she'll betray more men. Put out the light, and then put out the light. If I quench thee, thou flaming minister, I can again thy former light restore, should I repent thee. But once I put out thy light, thou cunningest pattern of excelling nature, I know not where is that Promethean heat that can thy light relume. When I have plucked the rose, I cannot give it vital growth again. It must needs wither. I'll smell it on the tree. 
balmy breath that doth almost persuade justice to break our sword. One more, one more. Be thus when thou art dead, and I will kill thee and love thee after. One more, and this the last. So sweet was ne'er so fatal. I must weep, but they are cruel dears. This sorrow's heavenly. It strikes where it doth love. She wakes. Thank you, Deborah. Terrific. There are a lot of things about that presentation that jump out at me. And the first, I think, is the elongation yes. of the vowels. Yes. And also somehow the attention to melody, which is kind of evocative in my mind of the 1940s golden age of the RSC, John Gilgood, Lawrence Olivier style. Wow, you tried to say up Gilgood like. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Garrett, you flatterer. I'm saying that there uh-huh. certainly is a lot of the DNA of this piece that is in common with that yes. style of elocution. I think that some of the great speeches in Shakespeare, the poetry is just so magical that some of it just never changes over 400 years. And when you think about the scansion, that helps the rhythm. And then I just so happen to like poetry stuff. So I guess sometimes my Shakespeare, the verse tends to sound more poetic and sometimes it sounds more conversational depending on what it is that what we're portraying at the time. Certainly he's ruminating right now and he's not speaking necessarily to anybody, so there is a little bit of poetic nature to it. But I'm interested in three thrice repeated phrases. You have yes. it is the cause, yes. put out the light, yes. and one more. Yes. Why do you think Othello is doing that? What's the use of repetition here? Well, I think that the first one is him trying to come to it, trying to get to the final decision why he's going to do this. The cause. The cause. The cause. This woman, she done messed up. She done gave away my stuff. It's so bad, (laughs) I can't even name it to you, you chase stars. This damn cause. I have to do it because of the cause. Is it his reputation? Is it honor? What is the cause? I think it is honor, his reputation. I think not only that, but you know how men folk are. They don't like you to share their stuff. (laughs) 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 It becomes a problem. Men folks get crazy when they think that you even got close to, sniffed, smelled, forget about, touched. It is something that just makes them crazy. So, can I go to the big rock? Yes, you can keep going. You're getting a lot of... We're not going to touch that. We're not going down that road, Deborah. <laughs> we've had women playing men. Uh-huh. And yes. we've had women playing roles that were traditionally assigned to men as women. But listening to your Othello and knowing your association with Lisa Volpe, I'm assuming that this all-woman Othello is actually going to be women playing men's parts. Is that? That's correct. That is what's going to happen. I remember when I was first talking to Lisa about doing this Othello, I was concerned about how I was going to be masked in my bosom. Yeah. So I said to her, I said, Lisa, am I a woman general? She said, this is a man's story. <laughs> <laughs> okay. It is the cause, Deborah. It is the cause. 
So I got all dutied up in my cute little mustache and textured side beard, and it worked out nicely. People really loved it. The girls fell in love with him. I had to beat them off at the end of the show. (laughs) (laughs) Were there famous apocryphal, probably, or who knows, stories of actors in blackface playing Othello and lowering their vocal register by as much as an octave to take him on. And I hear you lowering your vocal register as well when you're playing. Yes, I do, mainly because I'm working to give the illusion of someone who speaks a little deeper rather than Othello sounding like a girl. Because, you know, I have a tendency to sound like a girl. So... I push my voice down and use my lower register. I I do switch it up so that I have some octaves happening so that you can hear the music in the poetry, in the language. But for the most part, I do drop my voice down. Speaking of the music and the poetry, there are a couple lines that are puzzling to me, and I wondered if you could help shed some light on them. In the version that our listeners can follow along with, if they're following along on our website, this would be reference to line 11 which is thou cunningest pattern of excelling nature. And I admit that that's tricky for me to puzzle out what that means. For me, I made it mean. I'm saying to her once I put out her light, and then I refer to how naturally beautiful she is, but she's so cunning and such a woman. We heard earlier that the Venetian women are cunning and that they sleep around and don't tell their husbands. So for me, I refer back to the fact that, but for me, I'm thinking about that she has lied to me and lied to me, yet look at her lying there. She's so damn beautiful. Ah, as if her physical perfection is dissembling against her moral. It's messing me up right now. Right now, I'm talking about putting the candlelight out and knowing that I can restore the light, but... Then I'm thinking about putting out her light, the light of her life, her, her spirit self. I'm thinking about putting that out. But then when I look at her, she's cunning and oh, I want to kill her, but she's so beautiful. And I don't know where that special kind of heat that's going to relight her if I put her out. But then I refer to her as a rose and in plucking it, when you take a rose off the vine, the only thing it's going to do is die. So for me, it's about her beauty and about her being so lovely, but so wicked. And so she has to go. Could they not talk it out? Could they not see a good therapist? I mean, if this relationship is well, you know, I <laughs> really think they could saving. have talked it out if. When Othello said to her, where is that handkerchief that I gave you? He says, is it lost? Is it out of the way? She says, oh, no, 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 it's not lost. The damn thing is lost. Why didn't she just say it's lost? Right. If she would have said, I lost it, honey, I'm sorry, and then did that woman thing, she might have been all right. (laughs) (laughs) But she died and said, no, it's not lost. I'll get it to you later. Lost? handkerchief more damning than any text thread could possibly be. Well, Garrett, I would make the argument that they do have a therapist. They just chose the wrong one because his name is Iago. Oh, yes, because you know what? He does give her counsel. And he gives Othello counsel. He gives Othello counsel. He gives everyone counsel. He gives Rodrigo counsel. But everyone he gives counsel ends up dead. Deborah Amber, thank you so much for being a guest on our program. Thank you for having me. I'm Garrett Vandermeer. And I'm Jim Elliott. And thank you for listening to The State of Shakespeare.
Thanks for joining us for the State of Shakespeare podcast. We invite you to visit stateofshakespeare.com for more episodes, information about each of our guests, and the Shakespeare text you heard on the program, and much more. And we welcome you to join the discussion by liking us on Facebook. That's www.stateofshakespeare.com. Thanks for listening.